All right. Well, I think we are going to go ahead and get started here. If you have a Bible, we're, we're going to be kind of quoting Scripture at different points in, in, in the Bible, so it may be hard to follow along with some of these references. But why don't you go ahead and just open to Genesis chapter 2 as a jumping off point, Genesis chapter 2. There was a book written a number of years ago called The Gospel at Work, How Working for King Jesus Gives Purpose and Meaning to Our Jobs. Uh, Greg Gilbert, who's a pastor in Louisville, Kentucky, and another guy named Sebastian Traeger, who I don't know very well, uh, they wrote this book, and this has certainly influenced how we are thinking about this, but we, we don't have many original things to say. We are uh, leaning on a whole bunch of other people. Uh, there's also a YouTube channel, The Gospel at Work, that has a bunch of talks on, on this theme that, that's worth looking at if you have time. Scott, could you pray for us, and then sure. we will uh, jump in? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful uh, for these gatherings where we can come and gather freely in, in the gym here and enjoy a meal together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And now we can sort of open your word and, and think about uh, work uh, from a biblical perspective. Uh, we're going to, many of us in this room will spend many, many hours uh, in our jobs. And so we, we want to work uh, at our jobs for the glory of God. Certainly we, we do. And so uh, I, I pray that you would help us tonight to, to be faithful to your word. But also I pray that all of us would sort of leave here tonight wanting to honor you more fully uh, at our jobs, even tomorrow, that it would make almost an immediate impact in our lives, that we would see how the, how the gospel should be impacting every area of our life, and certainly it should be impacting our work lives. So I pray that really this time here in this discussion and the, and the discussion at the tables afterwards would, would make a, a real impression on us and would really, uh, we'd apply uh, what we learn here tonight to our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we talk about the, the subject of work uh, I've, I've had students say this in the past, uh, you probably have heard someone say it, but sometimes people will misunderstand what Scripture teaches, and they will say that, uh, you know, the work is part of the fall. So, you know, work began at the fall. Adam and Eve were having a great time before that, but work is really just a part of the curse, and that is not, that's obviously not true. Uh, if you look at Genesis chapter 2, even before God has created Eve, if you look down at verse uh, 15... Genesis 2.15, the, uh, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. And you also know that he gave the command to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. That's a massive job. <laughs> fill the earth and subdue it. Uh, this is a massive job of really spreading what the glory of Eden was across planet earth. And uh, this was going to be something that was going to take many, many, many centuries to pull off, even if there had not been sin. And so clearly work comes before the fall begins. And so here, here's something that I would, I would guess is true for some of us, maybe a lot of us. We become a Christian at some point in our life, and we get a job. And if our job is not a church job or a missions job, you know, we're not involved with a youth group getting a paycheck there or, or, or on the mission field uh, and making that our, our sort of what we're doing with our life. We, we get sort of a regular job. And it's very easy to start thinking and feeling, you know, I, I don't know. I mean, my job, I know that I can make money with my job and I know that I can pay bills, which is a necessity in life. That certainly is good. And, you know, maybe my job does some good here or there. Uh, but really the job almost, uh, Ian was using the word compartmentalize. We can sort of compartmentalize work apart from church and apart from missions and all these other things, and it's very easy to sort of think of work as this thing on the periphery. We don't quite know spiritually what to do about it. When we get to church on Sunday, we, we kind of know what we're supposed to do. When we come to a thing like this, we kind of get the idea of what we're supposed to do spiritually speaking, but we, you know, I was reading statistics, and I even looked this up online, but uh, there, people were saying between 80 and 90,000 hours of our lives are spent at work, 80 to 90,000 hours. And the question Greg Gilbert asks in the book is, does God care about 90,000 hours of my life? You know, say I'm not a missionary, I'm not working in a church or something like that, uh, not working in some obviously ministry way. Does God care about these 80 to 90,000 hours of my life? Surely he does. Surely what God has planned for me in those hours is of real eternal significance. And so it often doesn't, we don't often get enough chance to talk about these things, but that's what we want to zero in on and, and talk about tonight. Work existed before the fall, and 
Was work cursed by the fall? Yes. So by thorns, you will work the ground. By the sweat of your brow, you will labor to bring the bread from the soil. You are dust. To dust you shall return. But so certainly work has become more difficult as a result of the fall. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Similarly there, there, there is a curse over this world in that sense. Romans 8 says the creation has been subjected to futility, but this is a temporary thing, and then we're waiting for a new creation. But work does not end in the new creation. Uh, we mentioned this in Sunday school the last week or so, but it's very clear to me that the way Jesus speaks about eternity is that it involves work to do. Work was before the fall. Work will exist after the fall. And if you think about it, the, 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 the gratification, the, 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 this, not, not, not a sinful kind, but a genuine gratification of doing something well that God has given you gifting to do and working hard at it and accomplishing a task and fulfilling an obligation, there's a real gratification that you felt at the end of a job well done. And I believe that as an act of worship to God, Jesus uses all kinds of analogies about heaven and eternity that show that we will have tasks and jobs to do that will be acts of worship. I've quoted this recently, but in Luke 19, it's Jesus says, well done, good and faithful servant, because you have been faithful in a very little, you shall have authority over 10 cities. Now, whatever that all is pointing to, it's pointing to in eternity some kind of glorious responsibility, authority over 10 cities. I don't know what that's going to look like outside of that parable, right? I don't know exactly what that's going to look like in flesh in real life, but it's going to be some kind of glorious sense of responsibility that God's going to give to us in eternity, and we will be working, I believe, for Him eternally. I don't think we will ever grow bored with this. I think that we, God will be giving us jobs to do, whatever that may be exactly, and we will be fulfilling those things as an act of worship to God with a great sense of joy in Him and honoring Him as His image bearers in the new creation. So, Scott, some thoughts about this idea? Yeah, I mean, I would just rewind. In, in terms of the 80,000 hours or 90,000 hours, it's, it's just a tremendous amount of time that, that we're going to spend at work. And, and my guess is that nobody in this room would say, you know what, you know, I'm, I'm glorifying God fully, completely, totally at work. No one's going to say that. There's no, just no way. And just think about how often you pray about your job or situations at your job or how often you get other people to pray about your job. I mean, there, there's just so much going on with, with, with our jobs. So I think we really... We want to see how the gospel will, will impact every area of our life. Like Mark is saying, there can be that dis disconnect. Nancy Piercy calls it the bifurcated life. You, you tuck in your, your faith here at church, but then it doesn't reach out. It's like the gospel doesn't seem to reach out to your work life. It's that parched ground, I've called it, where the gospel, the water of the gospel doesn't get to, but it should, in fact, impact every area of our life. So I hope that tonight, I, like I pray, that we will really be impacted by this and we'll want to glorify God more because, I mean, work, even if you're a mom, like this, there's work in that. We're, we're all going to be working. So, so we want to glorify God fully. And just like you're saying, work is before the fall. Like people think, no, work is a result of the fall. Yeah, I think Mark Dever quoted somebody who said that. He's like, no, that, that's just not true. And then the fact that we're going to work New heavens, new earth. That's amazing. Uh, one guy gave like a biblical theology uh, of work and he, he talked about, this just made me excited about heaven. He, he said, work will finally be restored to its proper context. Toilsome pain of work will be done. All the futility of work will be gone. Work will be satisfying, fruitful, and rich in the new heavens and new earth. I mean, that should just, even we have trouble thinking about heaven as, as we should, but this should get us excited about the new heavens and new earth. No more toil, no more thorns and thistles, which we're going to talk about the thorns and the thistles. That's incredible. We should think about that, be excited about that. And he, but even now, work is a good gift of God. I mean, it's a good gift of God. I'm reading about this guy, Andrew Bonar, a Scottish minister, and he just wrote this thing. He just said, let us give thanks for life and work. I mean, we should be thankful to God that we do have work. We want to glorify God in our work. So uh, work is good. It is hard with, with the fall, but coming a day where it's going to be wonderful and all satisfying, joyful, no, no thorns and thistles. Yeah, and I, I'm still trying to get my grasp around the book of Ecclesiastes. It's been a mysterious book to me my whole Christian life. I've never felt like I really fully get exactly every part of that book, but I've been studying it a little bit recently, and I do think one way to approach Ecclesiastes, if you ever feel confused when you read that book, I think it's really Solomon at the end of his life looking back, and he's, he is looking at work through the lens of the curse and the fall. And I think that's a key to understanding Ecclesiastes. Uh, Solomon is looking at his life of work and labor under the fall, like after the, the fall in, in the Garden of Eden, and he is expressing, remember, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. Uh, you know, the, the sun goes up and it goes down and it runs back to its place, and the wind blows up and south and north and east and west, and the, the rain goes down and the rivers keep filling the ocean, but the ocean is never full. And over and over, and, and it's just a repetitive, endless cycle. And he says, you know, one generation comes, one goes, everything is vain under this sun that, that I work under. And he says, he goes on and on about, you make, you plant vineyards and you make all these wonderful homes and buildings 
and then you're, you die and you pass it on to maybe a fool or maybe a wise person, but you have no control over that. And I think Solomon is taking a long, hard look at life under the fall, and what he does at the end of the book is he says, okay, after having looked at all that, here's what we know at the end of the day. We're, we're going to come stand before God for judgment, and here's what we know. We've got to fear God and keep His commandments, and that is going to give purpose to all that we do throughout this life that we are living in. And so we, we don't want to eliminate God from our work. Uh, you know, it's interesting, with, because of the curse, uh, there are two, two major temptations, stealing this straight from Greg Gilbert's book, two major temptations come with work after, in, uh, under the fall. Number one is we make an idol, I-D-O-L, an idol of our work, and the other temptation is to become idle, lazy, I-D-L-E, in our work. So these are two massive things that will last until Jesus returns. These will be two struggles that everyone is going to have to deal with and fight against. One is to make an idol of our work. You, you think of the, we're, we're nearby. Look, look at Genesis 11 real quick. Just flip over to Genesis chapter 11. You know the Tower of Babel story. I'm not going to read the whole story, but just look at verse 3. This is obviously ungodly way of looking at work. Uh, Genesis 11, verse 3, and they said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. So we got some work going on here. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, come let us build ourselves a city. This is work and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Let us make a name for ourselves. Have they made an idol of their work? These guys are saying, okay, look, if we can do something so incredible at our job, if we can build this incredible tower that it may have been a ziggurat or something that goes far up into the heavens where we can meet and we can have some kind of control over heaven or over the gods in some sense, if we can do this, we will have worldwide fame. We will make a great name for ourselves. And from Babel until now, one of the great tendencies we're, many of us are going to struggle with throughout our life is to make a God out of what we do with our life. You could say, even if your job doesn't have a paycheck, maybe you're, you're home with your children, it doesn't matter. Whatever it is we are giving our life to, we're going to be tempted to wrap our whole sense of worth and security and significance around how well we are doing at X, Y, or Z. You've probably tasted it where there are times at work you're doing really well and you're starting to get maybe some recognition. You say it doesn't happen very much, but maybe it's happened, okay? You, you start getting recognition and people start saying complimentary things about you and you can start to feel this sort of, this, this sort of pleasurable feeling. This is, oh man, this, is, this feels good. I like what I'm hearing. And before long, what? My hopes are starting to lean into my reputation. I would never say it out loud, but I'm trying to make a name for myself here. I'm, I, there, there's something going on subtly in my motives, what look like, I'm, I may not have even changed on the outside, but on the inside, can't you tell when you're starting to lean into your work to give you a sense of comfort, a sense of security, a sense of who I really am? Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great preacher from the previous century, uh, Lloyd-Jones said, you know, he was trained as a medical doctor. They call him the doctor. Uh, he was an actual doctor before he became a pastor. And um, he said, a lot, of the, a lot of his peers said, or he said of them, many of them could have said happily, born a man, died a doctor. Because he said, for many of these people, once they became a doctor, a doctor became who they were. It became their definition of who they were. And so he said, this could be true of any profession, but is our identity primarily that? You meet a stranger, and what, what's one of our first questions? What's your name? And then what do you do. And there's nothing wrong with asking that, of course. We want to get to know them. But so often, who we are is tied to that. And, and let me just give some signs of, of that kind of thing. A, a sign that you know that you're making an idol of your work is that you're starting to actually find… <laughs> you're starting to find uh, that in, in that process, you, you start to find anxiety is unusually attached to fear of job performance going the wrong way. You start finding that this paralyzing sense of fear, anxiety can be wrapped up in your work or your performance. You start to say, well, what, if, what, what are these people going to say about me? What is this person going to think if I fail in this way? It's one thing to have natural concern about doing a job poorly. It's another thing to have a paralyzing, gripping sense of, of really overwhelming anxiety that you barely can function from. And that's a sign that our work is, is starting to take on too prominent a position in our life. Keep going, keep going. So moving to this next point, becoming idle in our work. What exactly does that mean? Well, if I'm not making my job my identity, 
it's very easy to stop caring really much at all about the quality or the condition of my work. As long as the paycheck comes in, I'm living for the weekend, right? I mean, how many, you've had coworkers, right? All they talk about is getting off work on Friday, right? It's just, I cannot wait to go downtown Friday and just do something fun. I, I just, work is miserable. I hate what I'm doing here, but I'm just punching the clock just to get the paycheck so I can go have the real fun time out there somewhere. Well, if that's the way we start thinking, what's going to happen to the quality of our work it's going to drop to the minimum possible standard that we could possibly work with. Sebastian Traeger, one of the authors of this book, he says that at one point in his life, he started, uh, here's what he said. I started a job as a professional deck sealer. My driving goal in this business was not to provide superior service or even to beautify the neighborhood, much less to glorify God through a job well done. My goal was to seal as many decks as possible in as little time as possible for as much money as possible, with as little effort as possible, okay? So, he says, I believed that mediocre work was okay. The quality of my work did not really mean anything to me. It was simply a means to an end, a way to get money and serve my own selfish needs and desires. So, if we find ourselves with no heart in our work, no real love for the people that we are serving in our work, we're just sort of treating them as objects and obstacles to get through the day as quickly as possible. We're kind of treating them like they're not fully human, just kind of getting through, checking the list. That is a sign that I'm now not actually treating work with the dignity that I should. I'm actually becoming idle in my work. I'm not, I'm not actually treating people well. Uh, thoughts on laziness? Yeah, I mean, I think there's got to be a huge temptation, certainly if it's a job you don't like, which my guess is all of us in here have done jobs that we don't like, and maybe some of us in here right now are in a job that we don't particularly like. And if you're in a job that you don't particularly care for and you, and you, and you don't have the gospel reaching that parched ground in your life, oh, you're going to just become, it's a means to an end. You can't wait till the weekend, basically. I mean, you're, you're just not going to do uh, great work. So again, we need to see how the gospel connects. And there, there was a story that somebody told, I think it was Dale Davis, who was a commentator, told this story about Spurgeon. Spurgeon, uh, there was a girl who was a maid, I think, uh, in the 1800s in London. She's cleaning houses. She's converted. I think she was converted at Spurgeon's church, and then she wanted to join the Metropolitan Tabernacle, and so she sent in her information, and then I think Spurgeon was the one meeting with her, this woman who's a maid who'd been converted, and Spurgeon was talking to her about her conversion, getting information about her, and then he, he asked her uh, the question, how has your uh, faith in Christ, how has it begun to impact itself? How has it begun to show itself in your life? And this is what she said. She said, uh, she's a maid, she, she said that now I sweep under the rugs, is what she said. Like, she used to just do, like, sort of just cut the corners, not do a great job cleaning. Now she's doing, going above and beyond. She's not being idle in her work. No, now she, she's serving King Jesus. She wants to honor King Jesus, she's not going to be idle. And so again, the gospel's got to connect. We're gonna, I thought, I'm jumping ahead in some of this, but we, we've got to connect the gospel. And when we see that we're working for, for the king, oh man, how, how are we going to be idle in our work? It's, it's going to help us to, to not be idle at all. And also God's sovereign, God's sovereign and good. Like We'll talk about Joseph too. I, I don't, there's so many of these things that I'm going to jump ahead on. But I think we need to see if, if this job is the job God has for me right now. I think uh, Greg Gilbert told the story of a guy, guys come up to him, like 18, 19 year old, and they'll, they'll say, I've been called to the ministry. He said, whoa, like slow down. Like, what are you doing right now? Like, what's your job right now? Well, that's where God has you right now. And so we got to trust God's sovereign and he's good. He has, he has plans for us in that job. And that and the gospel impacting should keep us from, from idolatry or that's, from idleness. Yeah. That's helpful. It turned to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. If there's one chapter of the Bible that is in the New Testament in particular, that talks about the importance of working hard, 2 Thessalonians 3 is a great place to turn. As you're turning there, I'm still talking about making an idol of your work or becoming idle in your work. Uh, one person pointed me to an article, I looked it up on the New York Times from 2013. There's an author, he's not a Christian, named Benjamin Nugent, and he was a writer. And th this is coming from a non-Christian writer in the New York Times about nine years ago, he said this quote. This, this quote really was interesting. Again, coming from a non-believer. Benjamin Nugent wrote, quote, I tried to make writing my only God. So this, is, this guy just said, I, lowercase g, I made writing my only God. When good writing was my only goal, I made the quality of my work the measure of my worth. That's pretty insightful coming from probably an atheist, as far as I can tell. So I made, I made writing my God... Then at that point, the quality of my work was the measure of my worth. Now, just stop there. He talks in this article about how paralyzing that became. Because once his work was entirely his, defined by how good it was, like his whole worth was wrapped up in that, guess what that did to, the, to, what, to his working? It messed everything up. Because suddenly he was absolutely paralyzed every time he wrote anything because it had to be fantastic. It had to be incredible. And he became so... Um, 
caught up in his work that he could no longer work well. Uh, it goes on, he goes on to say this, for this reason, I was not able to read my own writing well. I couldn't tell whether something I had just written was good or bad because I needed it to be good in order to feel sane. I lost the ability to cheerfully inter interrogate how much I liked what I had written, to see what was actually on the page rather than what I wanted to see or what I feared to see. And uh, this is even more depressing. I just saw an article a couple, like a week ago, uh, a guy named Gustavo Arnold. Uh, he was a Bed Bath & Beyond CFO, 52 years old. Bed Bath & Beyond has been apparently like shutting down 150 locations. They've had a 20% loss of employees. And this guy was also in legal trouble, uh, connected to some of all these different things. There was a controversy. He committed suicide. He jumped out of his apartment uh, building and committed suicide. Well, listen, I don't know all the details of what was going on there, but from what I could tell in the article, it sounded like this guy's entire life was what was going on at his job. And when his job started falling apart, his life had no further purpose, and he committed suicide just a couple of weeks ago uh, in, I believe it was in New York City. So moving here to becoming idle in your work, 2 Thessalonians 3, look at verse, <clears throat> look at verse 6. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it, but with toil and labor we worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give, in, to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busybodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. As for you, brothers, do not grow weary in doing good. If anyone does not obey what we say in this letter, take note of that person and have nothing to do with him, that he may be ashamed. Do not regard him as an enemy, but warn him as a brother. So the Apostle Paul the man who was wanting to win the world for Christ, planting churches all over the Roman Empire. He says, my tent-making job is very important in, in, in regards to my walk with the Lord Jesus. Planting churches matters, but Paul doesn't say, and tent-making doesn't matter. He says, my job on the side where I'm making money to support myself and care for other believers, it is important. In fact, if there are Christians in the church who don't want anything to do with their everyday job, don't want to earn the paycheck, just want to mooch off other people and eat other people's bread rather than earning their own living, he says, that person needs to be warned. And if they're warned a couple of times and they, they don't repent, they need to be actually, in a sense, ashamed. They need to be treated in a way that will wake them up to the seriousness of ignoring their work and being lazy in their job. It is a dignified thing that we work hard to earn our living and to honor the Lord in that process. Yeah, I mean, just a quick quote. Uh, I'm not even sure who said this, but Jesus didn't intend for us to be idle people. We should be busy doing the work the Father has given to us, which it could take, that could take any number of forms. It could be changing the diaper, it could be helping somebody in the hospital, whatever it may be. Uh, we want to be busy doing, doing the work that God has, has given to us. Yeah, that's helpful. And turn with us again to Matthew 25. And I, I know the parable of the talents is quite familiar. I'm not going to read all of it, but I do want to read a few parts here. Let's start here in verse uh, 16. You probably understand the parable. A man goes on a journey. He gives uh, some of his property in the form of talents, which were uh, amounts of money to his servants while he's gone that they could invest and work with that. Verse 16, he who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them, and he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I've made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful over little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he who had the two talents came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I've made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master." And then the man who only had the one talent, look at verse 24, he also who had received the one talent came forward saying, Master, 
I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not, where I've scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. Now, I understand this is a parable about how we use our lives. It's not just about investing well. I understand that. But still, there's a point that's being made, which is work is meant to be productive. And all of us can testify to moments where laziness has gotten the better of us. And if you watch too much TV or you do whatever mindless thing for too long, what do you start to feel internally? Don't you feel your soul is just rotting on the inside? If you are unproductive for, listen, we'll we'll talk about this, but work and rest are both valid and legitimate parts of the Christian life. We need to work, we need to rest. But remember, it was six days of work, one day of rest. It wasn't six days of rest and one day of work. And so we need to get the proportion right. We need to rest appropriately, but we can also make an idol out of rest, right? And if we rest way too much and just veg out way too much, whether it's social media or whatever screen time you have in your life that you lose control of at times, when that happens, you can feel, I'm not meant to be doing this infinitely, just on and on, scrolling or whatever it is. We feel that sense of, I am being useless. I'm just sitting here wasting time, and God has made us to be productive. The guy with the five talents produces five more. The one with two, two more. There's that idea of productivity, which Jesus is clearly looking upon positively. And listen, we don't want to make an idol out of this, but it is not wrong. In fact, it is honoring to the Lord, if done right, to finish a day of work and to have that real sense of gratification to say, Lord, thank you. Thank you that I was able to carry a load today, accomplish some task, love someone, accomplish some job today. Thank you for that. Work is a gift. Without work, we, we, we really lose our sense of purpose in this world. And so God has given the gift of work, and it is a, it, it's a wonderful thing that we should not uh, despise. You want to talk about your, your roommate that, that wasn't working in uh, that illustration? Or? Oh, yeah, 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 that's a good point. Yeah, so I, I will, this will remain nameless. I don't think most people in here would know this person, but many years ago, before I was married, we, I had a roommate, I had a few roommates, but one, one roommate I had, uh, he was in his mid-20s, I think he was about 25 at the time, he, his, his parents were paying for his house payment and his truck, he had a truck, his truck payment, and he was not working a job at all. So he's a 25-year-old guy, single, his parents are paying for everything, and he has nothing to do. So I, I can remember coming home from work and uh, walking into the, into the living room, and there's this person laying on the couch, and he was watching daytime television, people flipping houses, which if you want your soul to leave your body, watch about four hours of house flipping, and you will. You, your spirit will actually leave your body for a period of time. So I, I come into the room. He's laying on the couch, and you can just picture what he would look like, right? Just completely just like a blob on the couch. And there is whoever flipping, like, let's, which sink should we fit, you know, do it. And I was like, who cares? So they're, they're sitting there, he's watching this, and I asked him what he did that day. And this is like emblazed in my memory. He said, well, I watched some TV, so I can see that. I got up and got my truck. I drove to Walmart. I didn't have anything to buy. So I drove around the parking lot a few times and then I drove back home. And then I've been watching daytime cable TV for the rest of the afternoon. Now, he was struggling with, get, get this, some depression. I wonder where that was coming from at this particular moment, okay? He, he, he had nothing to do. Of course, you're going to feel miserable if you're not doing anything. God has made us to be productive. And when we are not doing that, my goodness, I mean, you can, God has wired us in such a way that we simply know that that, that is not the way we've been designed to, to be. Yeah. Are you going to talk about some of the Grudem stuff here? Or? Yeah. Um, yeah, so, so uh, th- this was interesting. From, from Wayne Grudem has a good talk online on this topic. And he just uses this illustration. Uh, he says, picture someone who has some fabric. Says some lady who makes shirts. She's got some fabric. She's got $3 worth of fabric. And she spends a lot of time making a very wonderfully designed shirt. And she sells the shirt for $13. Okay, so $3 of material, she sells it for $13. Wayne Grudem says, that may not seem like a big deal, someone watching from the outside. But what she just did was she did something labor-intensive that's difficult. Not everyone can do that. She took $3 of raw material and she created $10 of value that had never existed before in the world. So she took $3 worth of raw material, she turned it into a $13 shirt. Where did the $10 come from? She created it out of nowhere. She just made it. And, and that's what I, when you cut the grass of someone's yard and you make money from that, 
It's not a selfish thing. If you do a good job and, they, and you charge a fair price and they pay you that money, that money comes from the fact that you just created value in that person's yard. You took chaos, right? Weeds, bushes looking terrible. Everything's growing up. It looks awful. You, 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 you absolutely made it look beautiful. You beautified that lawn and they paid you the 60 bucks or 75 bucks or whatever you charge and you, you leave. You just created value in that person's yard. And if done with the right attitude, that act in and of itself is God honoring. It is honoring to the Lord. I remember David Powelson speaking of a nurse. Uh, I know we have some nurses and doctors and things like that around here. But he said he was in the hospital with cancer, you know, and, and Powelson ended up passing away from cancer. He loved the Lord. And when he was uh, barely conscious one night, a nurse came in to give him his IV. And they had to put a new, new uh, line in or something. And so the, the, she was trying to find a spot for the needle. And he just said, I, to this day, although she didn't even probably know I was conscious, he said, to, it was five years later probably when he said this, he said, I still remember the tenderness with which she went about trying to do this in the least painful way for me. She, she felt around, it was very clear she wanted to, it wasn't like she was rushing, you know, like, I gotta get it done, you know, boom. She, she, she felt around, she found the right spot, and she put, the, she put the, 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 um, the needle in, and he said he felt just the sense of common grace in that moment, just like, just the kindness of that woman lingered with him five years later. So here's one thing I, I wanna get at here, building off what we've said. Your work is a means of loving other people. Okay, I know we got pharmacists too in the room and, and things like that. But just think about this. Our daughter Molly, who's four, she has some kind of acid reflux thing where, you know, she, she, she started throwing up a lot at night. And first we thought she was sick, but then it was happening once a month, then it was every other week, and then it was happening almost every week. Every night you're scared she's going to wake up at 11 o'clock in the night throwing up in her bed, which was awful, and she's crying, and you just feel terrible as a parent. Well, we find out she has some kind of acid reflux thing. So the doctor diagnoses correctly, sends the sends the, the medical, uh, whatever you call it, to, to the pharmacist, the prescription to the pharmacist. I really know what I'm talking about here. And, um, <laughs> and the, the pharmacist fills the prescription, and we, we take that home, and we give Molly her medicine every morning and every night, and she hasn't thrown up, I don't think, since that happened. I mean, I don't think, at least not significantly. And so what, what seems maybe just like you're punching the clock, you know, you, you got to fill this prescription and send this thing out. You know, what, what's the big deal here? It's an act of love, right? It's an act of love because my daughter is not getting sick every night because of a pharmacist, because of a doctor, because of what's going on there. You know, stuff I don't understand that they're doing for us that is an act of love to my daughter. It's common grace to my daughter. So whatever it is you're doing, you're selling a house. You're trying to get someone a, a fair deal. You want to get them a property that works for what they need, that's good for their family, good for this couple, good for, this, good for what they're looking for. And when you're able to find that open door and provide that for someone, that is an act of loving your neighbor as yourself, if done with the right attitude, right? Non-Christians can do similar things, but not to honor the Lord. We're talking about a God-glorifying attitude. But whatever your job is, you're interacting with other people. Doesn't your job impact people in some way? If you're a stay-at-home mom and you're working with your kids, you know, the, the world says if there's not a paycheck, it's not real work, to which we could all laugh out loud to that nonsense, right? That's not true. It's not just by earning a paycheck. When you are caring for those children and when you're loving those children in those, in those early years where they need so much attention and so much help, every time you change a diaper, I mean, let me just get ridiculous here. If you don't change that diaper, what happens if it's just left there for a few hours? It's bad. If you don't if someone's not at home taking the trash out, if someone's not working on the chaos ensues, right? The world goes to chaos. And, and so uh, thorns infest the ground. So whatever our job is, we need to view it through the lens of loving our neighbor as ourselves. If you're a bus driver or a pilot, your job is to do the best job you can so you can safely land that plane and love your neighbor by getting them where they need to go. Or if you're driving that bus or you're the Uber driver, you want to get them where they want to go safely and in the way that you've been, you've been asked to do it. And uh, so I think we want, I want to restore the idea that our work has dignity, even if I'm not a missionary in the other side of the world. I don't want to disparage being a missionary, but a lot of us are not going to be missionaries. Your work still matters, and you should still see it as a way as, of, of loving your neighbor as yourself in the midst of, of those jobs. Yeah, I mean, I'll just quote from, from one guy who, who talking about, again, this, that, that theme of work is productive. He said, imagine that everyone quits working right now. What happens? Civilized life quickly melts away. Food vanishes from the shelves. Gas dries up at the pumps. Streets are no longer patrolled, and fires burn themselves out. Communication and transportation services in. Utilities go dead. I mean, internet goes out. He said, before long, you're going to live in caves. It's hunter and gathering. I mean, that's mm -hmm. the, the goodness of work. I mean, work is productive. But what got me was when Wayne Grudem talked about if we could take a time capsule and bring Adam and Eve back to right now, 
and have them walk around and see things. And he said they would pick up a water bottle. Adam would pick up a water bottle and say, what in the world is this? He said, oh, this is, this is water. You, you can drink it. And you open it up and he takes a sip. And he's like, this is amazing. You mean I don't have to go down to the river and get down on all fours and, and drink the water? No, this is a bottle. How did you get this? Well, God gave people wisdom and curiosity and creativity. And we took the raw materials of this world that God has given to us. We made a bottle of water. He looks up at the lights and says, what is, what is this? Is it, it's nighttime. How, how is that light in here? He said, well, Thomas Edison invented the light bulb and God has made light and running water and a cell phone. We can call Eve on the phone. Like it's, he said, we just lose the wonder of just what we have. It's absolutely, I mean, this is, made, this is like a side point. We should be filled with gratitude and praise to God because his common grace and so many things that we just take for granted that God has given to us. Uh, one, one guy talked about a chair. If you have a wooden chair at home, he said, look at that chair you're lounging in. Could you have made it yourself? How would you get, I mean, this is from nothing. How would you get, say, the wood? Go and fell a tree, but only after first making the tools for that and putting together some kind of vehicle to haul the wood and constructing a mill to do the lumber and roads to drive on from place to place. In short, a lifetime or two to make one chair. I mean, that's, that's so, I mean, it's so true. How would you be able to get one chair and just think about all the things that we have that God gives to us? I mean, it just made me start thinking about the things that we, you just take for granted that you use, like a computer or a phone or whatever it may be. I take, mm-hmm. take a book. I mean, how would you even go about printing a book? that we have. I have favorite pens. I have pilot pens that are a V5 pen. I looked up who made it. It was like 1985. Somebody, I think, created this pen. It's incredible. Like, the ink keeps flowing. And just think about these things. And when we think about these things, I think it should produce praise. And I mean, these tables and chairs here, like, how did they get here? I mean, we should be filled with awe and, and at God's goodness and praise. Like, Adam would just be constantly saying, like, how amazing uh, God is and his wisdom to, to give us all this. It, just building off that point, I mean, we just ate food, right? That food was made by a lot of people working, right, at the Chick-fil-A down the road here. Uh, we, could, we could always be thankful for Chick-fil-A. And th- th- we're able to pay, and they're able to bring it here. And many of you brought food tonight. And then the tables and chairs, the air conditioning, all, all, the, even this built this room, this 1980s gym, it's all the work that had to go into building what we have here. I mean, we, we sit here, we take it all for granted. We even complain about, oh, the air, AC's not working like I wish it did or whatever it is. But, I mean, there is... Thousands and thousands and thousands of hours of many, many different people working in order for this moment right now to happen. We got microphones. Someone had to invent the microphone and the speaker, and we have a live stream and all these different things that are all pretty, a lot of these are more recent inventions that are incredible graces of God, and those all come from work. And I know a lot of those people are not Christians, and I'm not saying that they're, you know, don't misunderstand what I'm saying, but obviously God's common grace is at work through human beings working, and we as Christians should be doing it out of a heart of love for God and for our neighbor. Uh, now, let me, let me push this neighbor love point for a second. Let's not forget that we're going to be around a lot of unbelievers, for many of us, at our job. Um, it, can be, it can be very easy to grow callous to the condition, the eternal condition of the people that we work with. You know, Ian was saying, like, it's every day you really need that reminder on the way to work. Right, when Ian's working with people in, at UGA here, and he's, uh, you know, I don't know where all his coworkers are at, but I'm sure not all of them are walking with the Lord. And so every day as you go to work, we need to be thinking, I'm interacting with eternal individuals. Eternal individuals. And as C.S. Lewis would say, they're either going to be in eternity individuals that are so horrifying you would turn away in horror if you were to see them in their state in hell, or you would be almost tempted to bow down and worship them in their glorified state in heaven. Right? We're dealing with eternal wonders or eternal horrors every time we walk down the hallway at our job. And it is so easy to lose the eternal perspective. Like We have infinitely glorious good news that can rescue them, not from debt, not from you know, all these other seemingly minor things, but from eternal perdition, eternal destruction. And how we act and interact is going to be lending credibility or discrediting the message we claim to be representing. If I'm always grumbling and complaining, like my tendency has always been, I struggle with that. If, if, my, if I'm around my fellow employees grumbling and complaining on and on about the hours we're working or about whatever silly thing it is, I am now discrediting the Christianity I claim to be following because they may not know a lot of Christians, but they know you. And if, if you're inconsistent in the way you live or I am, it really makes it hard to then a few weeks later say, oh, and let me tell you about how great Jesus is. It's like, well, you can't even get over the air conditioning unit. What are you going to tell me about Jesus? Uh, you know, what in the world? So, so I think that, that having a contentment, a real joy and security in Jesus that transcends the, the ups and downs of the workplace, which I know that's easier said than done. I know it is. But if, that's, if we're able to do that by God's grace, people around us will be able to see a difference in us, 
uh, you know, the light that shines through the darkness. And they may ask us questions, and whether they ask us questions or not, we can talk to them. We, we can bring things up with them and share with them. Can you, can you talk about working at uh, Athens Micro for how many years now? Almost, almost 10. Almost 10. Yeah. Oh, man. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think we want to adorn the gospel of God, our, our Savior. And uh, I, there was a story that I heard from uh, a guy who was talking about a baseball manager. This was Willie Mays played way back. And apparently the guy was a, was a professing Christian, but he was living an immoral life. And he used to try to evangelize his players. And the players just were like, uh, you know, they were not having it. They wouldn't listen to him because it, his, his life didn't, didn't match up uh, with what... Uh, yeah, with, with, okay. Sorry, I'm getting off here. <laughs> I got to try to think back on Athens Micro. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think Athens Micro for me, I could say, it was, it's not the job that I really wanted for sure. And uh, certainly, I don't. I could get into the sanctification aspect of where your work will sanctify you. And uh, I could even go b- before Athens Micro. When I first became a Christian, I was working at a coffee place. And then on the side, I started delivering pizza on the side. And how work will sanctify you because God puts you in a place where there can be difficult people. And I remember working uh, at Papa John's and there was a guy, there was one manager that I don't think he particularly liked me that much. And it was, all, it was very <laughs> difficult with this guy. But what happened was it drove me to pray, which that's what happens when we have a difficult situation, difficult work situation. It drives you to your knees. And I just remember he was, he was always getting on me about different things. So I, I remember just praying sincerely about this situation. And I remember the very next time that I went back to see him, like, out of the blue, he comes over and he, he, says, he gave me a compliment. Like, out of the blue. It's just, like, amazing how God will use work to even a, a place where maybe you don't particularly, it's not your favorite thing. He will sanctify you. He will drive you to your knees, drive him to himself uh, to, to grow you in that. No, that's helpful. And uh, just turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Continuing on this with this idea of, of loving the Lord and loving your neighbor at work, Philippians 2, look at verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I, uh, I, may be poured out, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. These are familiar verses. Look back again at verse 14 and 15 one more time. Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. I mean, I remember the first time that really stood out to me. I mean, if you knew Paul was about to say, here's how you can shine as a light in the world, holding on to the word of truth, what would he say? And you're like, oh man, it's going to be something really epic and amazing. Don't grumble or complain. That's how you shine. I mean, I'm not making that up. Verse 14, do everything without grumbling or disputing, complaining, and by so doing, what does he say? You'll be without, uh, without uh, blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. If you want to be a shining light at your job, let your attitude be one of contentment in Christ and not the grumble. I mean, think about it. I'm not, I'm not picking on any job here, but I, I just, I never, I've never worked in a restaurant before, but I've got tons, I know tons and tons who have. And virtually everyone says the same thing. If you're a waiter or a waitress, when you go back in the kitchen, or you go back to where all the other waiters are, what do people do? They complain about tips. They complain about how they were treated by the customers. It's just like an endless complaining just record on and on and on. Oh man, can you believe what these people did? They left. They didn't give us anything. And on and on. Well, imagine if you're in the restaurant and you're a waiter or waitress and you have a, not a fake, but a real contentment and gratitude and you don't complain. I mean, if we sin, we can confess and repent and keep going. But if, if imagine you really don't complain. Are you going to stand out like a light in the midst of the restaurant that you're working. Everyone's freaking out and angry and moving around and complaining, and you are just contentedly moving through and loving other people and being patient and never complaining. You are going to shine like a light in a very difficult moment. And I, I think that we, we should never underestimate the power of, of those kinds of character transformations. Yeah, I just wanted, I wanted to mention this, which I don't know if you're going to come to this, but I, I thought one point was work for God counts forever. Mm. It was one of the points, work for God counts forever. And this is, this is from Piper, I thought it was really good. He says, you will bring zeal and excellence and joy to your work because you know him. You trust him, you, you treasure him. You want to make much of him in all that you do. So, I mean, when the gospel invades, I mean, you want to make much of, of Jesus in all you do. You know that everything, 
everything done in the name of Jesus and for the glory of Jesus, from the washing of the bathroom to the running of the boardroom, will be rewarded forever with 10,000-fold undeserved joy. I mean, that's absolutely amazing. I mean, that should transform the way we, we work. Everything will be rewarded, done for, for the glory of Jesus. It's going to be rewarded from the, from the changing of the diaper to the, to the cleaning clothes or whatever it is to the, the board CEO in the boardroom. It's going to be rewarded with undeserved joy. I mean, that's absolutely amazing. It made me just think of like the, the unsung heroes, people behind the scenes, church history, made me think of uh, D.A. Carson's dad, Tom Carson, this, this faithful minister who's, who's praying and pleading with God for the 12 people he preached to and just laboring over his sermons and praying for 45 minutes a day at least, Carson said, he's going to be rewarded f- for that. I thought about uh, Elizabeth Newton, John Newton's mother, who died at 27, tuberculosis. John Newton was six, not quite even seven years old, and she labored. I mean, she was fatigued. She was weak. I'm sure she wanted to stay in bed, but she I'm sure she prayed and pleaded for strength and help, and she poured her life, that short life that she had, into her son. John Newton taught him theology, taught him catechism, taught, taught him the gospel. She will be rewarded uh, for, for her work. And I, I thought about um, Nate Saint, who was, who was a missionary martyr that most people know Nate Saint. He's one of the five that was killed in Ecuador, but how many people know his, his mother? Uh, I had to look up her name today. Her, her name is Catherine Saint. She had seven children. She had six boys, one girl, seven children, and Nate Saint wrote this letter back to his mother thanking her and uh, here's just some of what, what he said to her, which, which is just, uh, it's moving. Because, I mean, this is, she's a godly mom. He said, thanks, mom, for thousands of pots of soup on the back of the old stove, thousands of mendings of shirts and socks. Again, seven children. They're probably sharing uh, clothes, and she's mending these shirts and socks. Tens of thousands of washings. And thanks, mom, for the many tears shed in secret that brought divine intervention into the lives of your brood. I mean, here's a mom who's working very hard. Sounds like for the glory of God, washing and mending and cleaning and praying, and God sees all of it, and God will reward her one day. And if we live in light of that, it will transform totally, I think, the way, the way we work. If, we, if we're living, again, in light of eternity, in light of the gospel, in light of the fact that God sees everything, everything done faithfully to him, he will reward us with joy. I mean, that doesn't motivate us. I mean, something's really wrong. No, and I, I want to build off that. Flip to, it should just be right before Philippians, Ephesians chapter 6. <clears throat> Ephesians 6, look at verse 5. And before I read this, I'm going to quote Greg Gilbert again. He said, who you work for is more important than what you do. Who you work for is more important than what you do. Look at Ephesians 6, verse 5. Bond servants, obey your earthly masters. So think employees, obey your bosses today. With fear and trembling, with a sincere heart, as you would Christ. Not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bondservants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord. That's the reward. Whether he is a bondservant or is free. So, I mean, if we just try to measure our work by worldly standards, no one's going to ever feel like a success right? If, if we just try to measure against each other, we're going to all feel like my life didn't feel big enough. It didn't feel like I did enough big things out there that really shook the world up. I, my life feels so small. I've heard people who've done major ministry accomplishments, like written books that have sold huge copies, many copies. They've been extremely influential pastors. I can think of a couple who've said, I feel like I have not been successful. Like, I feel like what I've done has been so small. Well, here's the deal. Flipping the whole mindset around. We're almost done for this part. Flipping the whole mindset around the smallest act of the most menial job done for King Jesus is eternally consequential and will never be forgotten. So the, small, the janitor who is cleaning the toilets, right? The, the janitor mopping the floor, if, doing, if he or she is doing that for God's glory, then that good deed will never go away. It will matter forever. And the CEO who accomplishes all this amazing stuff by worldly standards but doesn't love the Lord, at the end of their life, what are they going to have? They've got nothing. It's going to amount to absolutely nothing at the end of the day. And so keeping the idea that who we work for is more important than what we are doing, whatever God has you do this week is what God himself is having you do. And we should do it as unto him, not just for our boss, but for God. And in the process, he says, we will receive back from the Lord for whatever good anyone does. It it will matter for all of eternity. And we'll, we'll wrap up with this point before we have our discussions here is, I know we've made this point before, but we cannot forget this. Jesus did miracles and ministry for three years max, if you do the timeline. It's about three years, right? What was he doing for the first 30 years? 
He was doing a blue-collar job. The Greek word is tekton, which basically means somewhere between masonry with woodworking, some kind of building. It's hard to pin down precisely. People always say car- carpenter. It's a little more complicated than carpenter. But whatever he was doing precisely in Nazareth, he was essentially hammering nails, working with stone, helping with building projects. That's the kind of job that the Greek word is referring to. How long did he do that? He probably started, what, 10 with his dad, maybe earlier, you know, with his dad right there. And he does it from, say, 10 to 30. So Jesus, God comes to earth. How does he spend his life? He only has 33 years. What does he do? He does 20 years of blue-collar regular job with his dad, three years of miracles and ministry and preaching, and then he dies. If there was ever a shout from heaven to give dignity to the everyday work that so many of us are employed in every day, it was the fact that when God became a man, he worked a, quote, regular job for most of his life before he died and rose from the dead. So there could not be a louder voice from heaven to say, your work matters. It mattered for Jesus and it matters for you. The issue we've got to fight is my, my motive being one of worshiping God, loving others with my work, and also loving others with the gospel while I'm at my work. I think th- those are some of the big ideas. Some closing thoughts there? Good. Yes, ma'am. Yeah, that's a great question. In fact, my sermon Sunday is going to touch on this, interestingly enough, but it's going to come up a little bit there. I don't think that uh, it's at all wrong. If someone is being violent or dangerous at your workplace, I do not think it's wrong to call the police, to do whatever needs to be done to take security precautions to protect. Because even that's an act of love. You're protecting the people that you're responsible for, and you want to make sure that you do that well. Uh, Even with our church, we have a security team, right? Every Sunday, we have security. We have people on security at our church just because we want to be able to be, uh, you know, safe and responsible so that if someone does do something that's, that's not right, we're able to protect the people that we need to protect. All right, let me, let me go ahead and pray for us, and then we'll, we'll have a little time of conversation at our tables. Heavenly Father, we all will admit that no matter what our jobs have been, we have sinned in various ways in relationship to our work. Who in this room can say that I have never sinned on my job in any way? God, we have complained. We have idolized our work. We've become lazy or idle in our work. We've been inconsistent sometimes, up, sometimes down. Sometimes we work hard, sometimes we we just mail it in. We've said words to other people that we probably shouldn't have said or in a tone we should not have said it. We have failed to, to, to rightly honor you, God, in many ways in relationship to our work. We've complained and on and on gossiped. And God, that's why we are so thankful for the gospel that Jesus forgives us if we will simply repent of those sins and trust Christ, we, we can be forgiven. And we, we who know you, we have been forgiven of all sin, past, present, and future because of Christ's finished work. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were given a job to do. You came to do the work that your Father gave you, and you will accomplish that work, and you did accomplish that work. And that work was the work of dying on the cross for our sins, the greatest work that has ever been done in all of history. And you rose from the dead triumphant. And because you that you're, you're, you had food to eat that people did not know of because your will was to do the will of your Father. And so, Lord Jesus, we thank you for faithfully finishing the job that you were given. And we thank you that right now you are seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven and that you are even interceding for your people right now as the great high priest. And so, God, I pray that we could in some way begin to imitate your faithfulness as we go to work tomorrow morning or as we work over the weekend or whatever it is we have in front of us, that we would do it with an attitude that would be honoring to you and an act of love to you and to the people that we interact with. And I pray this, I also pray that our conversations now as we discuss this would be helpful and edifying. I pray this in Jesus' name.